officially become members together and start this church, and this is our first Sunday gathering publicly. Um, I, I have been very, um, whatever the word is below anxious, I've been anxious about this message, uh, not to deliver it, but what to preach on. It feels very, um, it's like a lot of pressure, like what's, what do you say the first message? Um, there's going to be a handful of newcomers, do I do whatever I can like a salesman and try to convince you to come back next week and, and just talk about our vision and mission and all the money we're going to give away or all this kind of stuff I could do or... Or, or do I just treat it like any other Sunday and just kind of go along? And because we're going to start a series on the book of Ephesians starting in two weeks. But the more and more I prayed about it, I, I want to start at the end. And what I mean by that is I want to start at the end of history. And if we have an accurate picture of how all things will end, I think we'll have a good opportunity to get there well. It will help us figure out where we're aiming and how to get there together as a community. And so I think it would be most beneficial for our church if we started at the end. What are we, what matters when it's all said and done? What are we ultimately living for? And so that's where we're heading tonight. Um, All of us have goals and items and different things we're looking forward to or that we obsess over you guys want to talk about the if i just had the whether it's a marriage or a certain item or a job or a circumstance if i just was blank and if you're like me you've had those times where you're obsessing for months and months or years and you finally get that thing you've been hoping for maybe that job or that marriage or whatever it is And then after you get it, somewhere along the lines, or even maybe right in the midst of it, you think to yourself, huh, is that, is that it? You you guys know what I'm saying? Like this overwhelming sense of letdown because that which drove you for so long and gave you hope, all of a sudden is not what it cracked it to be. And then we go through a a period of disenchantment and then we think to ourselves, all right, what's next? What's the next if I just blank? And I think all of us have experienced that, and we know that something's not right with this. Something is off. And outside of our personal experience that we've all had with this, we just have to look outside of that into our culture. We look on the news. We know this world is not as it should be. It doesn't fully satisfy. It doesn't fully fulfill our hopes and dreams. And if we were all to go outside to a busy street, if, if fictitiously, if there's people there, because no one's out there because it's so hot, right? But if we interviewed a hundred people and asked them questions like this, like, what's wrong with the world? Or, what are we all longing for? Or, what's the solution to all our problems? We're going to have a, a vast array of answers if you ask those hundred people. But what's so good, what's such good news for us today, is that we don't have to guess. Because we have God's word, because God has revealed himself and not let us just on our own guessing, we don't have to guess what our purpose is. We don't have to guess what the end of the world will be like. We don't have to guess what's wrong with the world and what the solution of the world. And so, uh, this is good news for us. And Revelation 21 through 22 actually answers all these questions and far more, exceedingly more than we could ever imagine. Way better than anyone trying to figure out on their own. And so here's what I believe is the answer to everything. And that's this, okay? So this is kind of like the main point. God's presence is the answer to all our needs. 
God's presence is the answer to all our needs. So the rest of this message, I'm going to unpack what that means and why I believe that's the case and why that matters for us. This message is broken up in two sections. The first section, we're going to kind of trace from the very beginning of man, uh, beginning of history, what went wrong. What, What did we lose? How did we lose God's presence and our attempts to get it back and God's attempts to reconcile with us? And then the second half of the message is going to unpack Revelation 21 and 22. And it will be glorious. Not because I'm glorious, because the text is so glorious. And I hope all of us will leave so full of joy and hope. And if any of you do not know Jesus, I hope that you will have more hope than you ever have by the end of this message. And so we're going to start off in creation. Before we can go to the end of the world and the end of history, we want to start in the beginning. Before we talk about the solution, we want to talk about the problem. So what's the problem? From our vantage point, it's probably hard to remember a time and can imagine that there was a day when there was nothing wrong with the world. Like nothing. There was never a day where it was hot, where I'm, I, I can take a shower and the moment I get out, I'm already needing another shower. You guys know what I'm saying? Like that's how I feel right now. I don't feel good, honestly. And the more I preach and the more worked up I get, I'm just going to be drenched and I need one of those like preacher towels. I don't know if you ever seen that on TV where they have a towel and they'll, they'll, ba- they'll, they'll kind of pace and wipe their forehead. I need one of those. Um, so anyway, no hugs later. Um, but, but there was a day when there was never heat like this. Like, heat, like temperatures were like good, like just right, always, right? And, and there was no sickness. There was no pain. When God created the world, he created a good. And he created man, Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden to have a love relationship with him. And if you guys have been around kids or even atheists alike, you've probably heard the question, why can't I see God? If God is real, why does he just reveal himself? Maybe we could come up with some sort of spaceship and go up. And I I remember when we first went up into space, there was one person who reported, we went up there and God wasn't there. And everyone's like, oh, God's not there, you theist. God was in the space, right? And so we have this idea of frustration. Why can't we see God? And kids especially, I hear that from my kids. Why why can't I see him? Well, we forget that there was a day when we could see him. That he was right there. That we got to see him face to face and enjoy his presence in the cool of the garden. We had this relationship with him and it was so good. We were also, humanity was also given the task to work the garden and to co-reign with him. So not only is this just like this sweet love that we had with God, we also were tasked with purpose to, to work and to do good work without toil, without curse, and to reign with God. That's, that's one of the ways that makes us so unique from the animal kingdom is that we were able to reign with him. And in this garden, God put tons of trees Tons of delicious trees. And God said, Adam and Eve, enjoy every single one of them. There, there are so many yeses. Yes, 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 yes. But you know what? I'm gonna, I created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one no. Don't touch that one. Don't, don't eat of that fruit. Millions of yeses. One no. But as the old proverb goes by Jeffrey Chaucer, all good things must come to an end. And instead of guarding the garden and guarding and taking care of his wife, Adam actually let this serpent, you know, whenever you have a talking animal, you should probably raise some flags, this talking serpent to come into the garden and tempt him and his wife. And Satan says in Genesis 3, 5, 
if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Do we got the scripture references coming up? Have you guys seen those, Joel? Okay. Cool. Thank you. Um, so when you hear that temptation, you kind of see the heart of the first sin, the first temptation. It wasn't a fruit thing. It was a desire to be like God. That's the heart issue. That's the fundamental issue. If anyone asks you, hey, what's this word sin? That's, that's really the core, a desire to be God. And so at that moment, they committed high treason. They believed the lie that true freedom is being able to do whatever you want. The, the lie that creating one's own purpose is superior to finding it in God. The lie that in a world full of yeses and one no, that God actually doesn't love you, that God actually is looking out for, not for your own good. The lie that humanity knows what will truly satisfy and make them happy. But Adam and Eve, they were deceived. It was all a lie. And as a result, the whole world was cursed. Everything horrible we all know so well. Death, rape, racism, loneliness, depression, all that we know, wars, natural disasters, all that resulted from that rebellion. It was almost like God was the core of the earth and you just ripped him out of the core. We just removed him from his throne in our hearts. And the moment that happened, everything started to spiral downward and increasingly become more broken and more corrupt and more wicked. But most significantly, the greatest, the worst result of the fall was this. We lost access to God's presence. That's the worst thing that happened at the fall. See, we know that, and Hannah mentioned this rightfully, that God is everywhere. But, so so we, we have this idea that God is omnipresent. In one sense, he's everybody. But we're, what we're talking about in the garden is this tangible presence where it's like, oh, hey God, you're right there. He's right there. And it's not just he's there. There's favor coming from his face. There is love and acceptance just radiating from him. And we lost that. So instead of experiencing freedom and wisdom and joy the way they ought to have and the way they thought they were going to get when they listened to the serpent, they experienced the opposite. They were all of a sudden stripped bare. God's face was no longer covering them with his favor. So they felt naked and ashamed. And, and all of a sudden they felt totally empty and distant. But God in his kindness, what does he do? Adam. He goes after them. He proactively pursues them. And what what do they do? They run from him. They run from him. They hide. And they try to make fig leaves or some sort of covering over themselves because they feel so shame. So they're trying to take care of their own shame. And ever since that day, day, we've been doing the same. Ever since that day, humanity has been running from God. And humanity has been trying to cover up their shame. And at the same time, paradoxically, Humanity has been longing to be reunited with God. So this is weird paradox. Every person who has ever been born, no matter where they're at, is simultaneously hiding and running from God, trying to cover themselves, and simultaneously longing for unity with God. This crazy paradox. But God, in His kindness, hinted at a plan. A plan that He would make all things new and redeem man without destroying man and so this is where 
we move on to God's redemptive plan. God chooses a people to be his instrument to bring blessing to the world where he would reign and give a a picture of this is what it looks like when I'm king. A little picture of the peace and the harmony and the ruling and the the love within this one little kingdom, Israel. So the whole world would say, oh, so that's what Yahweh's like. And he had to, he tried to find a way to dwell with his people. But here's the tricky thing. How do you dwell with the people who are wicked? when you are just and holy and good, without destroying them. So he had to be creative. So he created something called the tabernacle. It was a tent. And in the tent, there would be a center place where he, his presence, his special garden-like presence would dwell. And only a certain people could have access. And so he had to have, be creative. Uh, this is the problem that repeatedly comes throughout the Bible. This problem of, how does this God dwell with man without yet destroying man and still being just? And this is a tension that we don't have in our culture. Nobody is freaking out about this this tension. Oh, why isn't God destroying us? It's the opposite. There's an assumption that God should all accept us. There's no sense of, oh man, why would God love me? That's very rare to find someone who has that sense. But this is a huge tension in the scriptures. How does God accept us? And yet, maintained His justice. I thought as an illustration, it's kind of like trying to bring a bright light in the middle of a really dark room and maintain that bright light and not snuff out the darkness. You see the impossibility of that? Huge light in the middle of a dark room and yet maintain the dark without obliterating it and maintain the light. That's, that's the impossible situation God has on his hands and how can he be with his people without obliterating them because of their corruption and their ongoing rebellion. And eventually this upgrades, this tent upgrades into a temple. Solomon builds this large temple. In the very middle of this temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. And if you actually look at 1 Kings, there's these dimensions in the Holy of Holies, and this will be important later on, was a cube. Was this cube. In this cube... Only the high priest could enter it. And and he would wear bells and a rope just in case that if he had unconfessed sin and he was not clean, that if he dropped dead in the Holy of Holies, that they could just start yanking him out. And so this is just this crazy situation where God is right there with his people. This is the Holy of Holies was where heaven met and kissed with earth. This one little place where God would dwell among his people. But sadly, the people of God took for granted the presence of God. And eventually God was so grieved at their idolatries that in Ezekiel you see this picture where the presence of God literally leaves the temple and goes away. And so for hundreds of years, Israel is without God's presence. And they're living under the foot of their enemies until... One day, we read in Matthew chapter 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in the Gospel of John, we also read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
That phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, carries huge significance. The word John used for dwelt literally means he tabernacled among us. If you, if you look at the original language in Greek, this word dwelling, tabernacle, is the same word in the Greek Old Testament that they use for the tabernacle for the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, I am, I am setting up shop. I'm back. God's presence is infiltrating. But I'm no longer a tent. I'm a person. And God's presence is walking among man. I really do need a sweat towel. Do you guys see this? This front row is seeing this. You know, some people, I I think when I first started preaching, I would spit a little when I got excited. But I I think I've got that under control. But now you guys are in danger of my sweat. Like, this is called the splash zone. And uh, Lord have mercy on me. Oh, okay. And so John was announcing that tabernacle has once again returned. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, he goes back into heaven. He ascends. And he sent his spirit to fill his people, which is what we're going to cover next week. So this sermon is going to be continued next week on that note. And currently we await his return. Because right now we are filled in part, but one day he will come back fully. And that's what we're waiting for. So now... We finally get to our text, okay? So all that background work, all that nerd work was, it was, was worthwhile, I promise you, okay? It's going to be that much sweeter. So if you don't have your Bible, please, uh, if you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation 21. And if you don't have a Bible, there's tons of Bibles around you. They're pew Bibles. So that is a blessing that we have here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, man. All right. Very attractive. Okay. You know, what's so sweet is that as much as I hate this heat, I think it's so good because the majority of the world, majority world Christians, this is what they experience in the heat. And us Western Christians, we're so pampered and we're like, oh, I need AC. And, you know, I even thought about asking some people to like fan me from behind, but I thought that would set a bad example. And uh, because I want to be a servant and I don't want to do that. That was a bad joke. Okay. Um, But this is so good. Like, we're going to suffer, and really, guys, it's going to be cold for the most of the year. So this is, a, this is an example for us to, you know, open up our pores and suffer together <laughs> and think about the, the world and many other Christians who don't have, have way more things to worry about than heat. Okay? I, I, I'm making it too light. They have way more things to worry about than heat, so this is the least of our troubles. So, all right. Now, first, before we get into the actual text of Revelation... Let me just give you a quick context, because when we read Revelation, it's all, it's all future, mainly. So we immediately think about, like, oh, what's going to happen? But remember, this was originally written to a people who are suffering. And if you go to the beginning of the book of Revelation, and you look at the churches that Jesus addresses, these people were suffering. Their goods were being plundered. They were constantly probably thinking, man, this Christian life is so hard. Is Jesus worth it? And Revelation is written to a suffering people. And so I don't know where you all all are. I know where most of you are because you guys are members of ABC and we're family. But like, this is a book to go to, not when you're curious or you want to be super clever, but when you're suffering. This is a really hopeful book for those who trust in Jesus. But But the worst book for those who don't trust for Jesus. Trust Jesus. And the hope is, if you don't trust Jesus, is that you'd be scared, the hell would be scared out of you, because you had then run to Jesus in his mercy. And so remember, when we're reading this, these are a bunch of believers who are suffering. There's over 32 verses in 
the section that we're covering. So I'm going to organize it in a way that I think will best un grab the main point. Here are the four sections if you're a note taker. What are the results of God's presence? Who has access to his presence? Who is prohibited from his presence? And ultimately, what is his presence like? Number one, what are the results of God's presence? Look at verse 1 in chapter 21. There's a lot here, and I want to unpack it more, but for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to skip the reality. But just to be clear, this is not a new heaven and new earth like the old one was completely just replaced. This is a new heaven and new earth in, in kind, in likeness, not completely different. And so God never planned to totally abandon the earth. He wanted to come back and redeem it. It started here, and it'll end here. So Jesus is not a ticket to heaven, a one-way ticket. This is kind of a round trip. When Jesus comes back, he'll make all things new. And so when we die, we eventually go to either heaven or Hades, depending on if you trust Jesus or not. And then after that, when Jesus returns, we're all coming back here who trusts Jesus, and he's going to make this thing new. Okay? So that's a whole sermon in verse 1, but I'm going to jump to verse 2. Um, when we look at this chapter, there's going to be a lot of weird symbolism. If you didn't notice when Hannah was reading... And I just want to make a note. This is apocalyptic literature. And the tricky thing about apocalyptic literature is it's very foreign for our culture. It was written around 300 BC to 300 AD in the Jewish circles. So it's not something we're really familiar. And the trick, another tricky thing about apocalyptic literature is it mixed genres. It will be narrative and then it will be something totally different. And so it's confusing. But what apocalyptic literature does so well is it uses symbolism to help us grasp things that are beyond us. So constantly you're going to see words like, like, like this, like this, because he can't just say, it's this, because it's something that we've never experienced before. And so when you think about this language, try not to be literal always, because if you do that, you're going to get, you're going to get, um, you're going to get in trouble. Also, what Revelation will do is it will mix metaphors. And so if you look at verse 2, You'll see that New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, it's a city, it's also a bride. You guys see that's weird? It's a city and it's also a bride. Okay, do you see how you can't take this exactly literal because it's a, it's a city but yet it's a bride adorned for a husband. And so these, this is John's attempt to stack on symbol, symbols after on top of symbols to help us grasp something that is just so beyond us. It's so great that it's kind of like this, and it's, it's kind of like a lion, it's kind of like a lamb, it's kind of like this, kind of like that. And, and, and so that's what he's doing. So that, that may be help as we go through Revelation. Notice this, that the city is coming down from heaven. God created the city. He created this thing. It's not something that man created and got to heaven. God created this thing. It's coming down from heaven. And this city is New Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem is where what was at? Temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. And so this is the New Jerusalem. And this is the opposite of Jesus' ascension. As Jesus went up, this is the opposite. Jesus is coming down. I mean, the presence of God is coming down fully. And it's here part in part in the church, but one day it'll be fully here. And notice the language here, the passive language. You see that where it says, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Notice it does not say that it prepared itself. Someone prepared him. God prepared the bride. 
Instead of us covering up our shame and trying to look good, God did this preparing. He set us up. God is the one doing the adorning. And now to my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The word here, dwelling, if, if any of you guys have a New American Standard Version Bible, that's the same word, tabernacle. That's the same word that we looked at in John chapter 1. That's the same word that's in the Greek Old Testament about the, ta- the tent. And so God is saying that the temple, God's temple, is coming and dwelling just like Jesus came and dwelled among us. I'm going to get water because can you see I'm losing my voice by the second. Maybe all the sweat is losing all the hydration from my body. This is just so ridiculous. I feel like I'm preaching in Haiti. That's not derogatory. Last time I felt like this was when I was in Haiti. This verse is clearly saying there's no more separation one day. No more mediation. No more need for a temple where people have to go through these rituals to get. It's just going to be right there. And notice the intimate language. Look at this. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And if you look at the original language... It actually adds a pronoun. Now, I'm going to go geek mode for a second, but trust me, it's worth it. In Greek, it says he and God, when it could easily just say God will be with them as their God. Right? It could easily say God will be with them as their God. But it adds he, he and God. Do you usually say a pronoun and a noun in the same verse? Do you guys know enough grammar? You guys know? Yes? Yeah, a little bit? I don't know grammar very well. I learned it in, in seminary. Um, and so what God is emphasizing is he himself. I will be yours. It's not just your mind, but I will be yours. Just imagine the, the beauty of a, of a man who loves a woman. He's not just saying, you're mine. But it's, I'm yours and you are mine, which is what my ring says. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. God is condescending himself and giving himself to people. I am yours and you are mine. It's so sweet. And the following verses from this point on unpacks what does it look like for God to dwell? What are the results of God dwelling on earth? This, these are the results, okay? Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Is, is it, that's so beautiful. Have any of you guys suffered and cried lately? I have. There will be a day where there will be no more tears. Isn't that amazing? Maybe the tears will be happy tears only. Most of us have probably gone through some deep pain at some point in our lives. The pain's so unbearable that, that we just go numb and we think to ourselves, this, this is not real. This is, this is a dream. I just pinched myself. This is not real. All of us have experienced that, and that will never happen again. 
hear these words that, to me, when I read this, it evokes the imagery of like a mother wiping the tears of a son and saying, now, now, child, everything's going to be okay. Can you see that? And this tenderness from God is just holding us and saying, now, now, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and he can say that with confidence. Why? Because the final enemy, death, will be destroyed. In Revelation 20, verse 14, it says that death is destroyed. It's kind of funny today. <clears throat> if I talk like this, can you hear me? I need to get a monitor because I'm going to just scream my voice out in the future, okay? So in the future, let's get a monitor. Um, Elijah today, I don't know what, how he started talking about it, but he's like, I think dad's going to die first because he's the oldest out of our family. And, and then he said this, and so sweet. He said, I wish nobody had to die. And I said, perfect. There will be a day, Elijah, when nobody has to die. And this passage is connected almost directly from Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, this beautiful picture. He will swallow up death forevermore. Forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So beautiful. With all the suffering of the original recipients of this letter, can you imagine how they're like, no way, no way, shut up. This, this isn't true. And that's why I love the scriptures, how they anticipate our objections. Because look at the next verse in verse 5. He knows the doubt that's coming. Verse 5, and he was seated, seated on the throne, said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Note, he's seated on a throne, which shows his authority. Note also that he's saying, I'm making all things new. He's not saying, I'm going to try some new things. No, everything will be new. Also note that he says, write this down. Mark it down. Whenever someone says, write it down, they're like, hey, trust me. Take me, take my word to the bank. And I love how he says this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. This passage is pointing to God's eternality. See, let me explain eternality real quick. This is a kind of tricky word and a tri trickier concept. Eternality is this idea that God is outside of time. That at every moment, God is able to be part of every single part of history, past and future, and yet be fully present in the present. That, that's crazy. He's able to be fully present with us right now because this is the present, I think, unless there's some sort of crazy stuff going on, right? We're in the present, and yet he's able to be in the future because he's outside of time. So he's saying, hey, you can trust me. I've already been there. I'm seeing it right now. It's as good as done. That's why this is in the perfect tense. For grammar nerds, he's saying it's already done. You could trust me. You can bank your whole life. You could suffer. You can be persecuted for the rest of your life because you know that when I come back, it will be good. And you could trust me. And so if you're suffering and you're frustrated at how your life is going when your relationship with God and you're struggling with the, the, the cares of the world and the trials of the world, you could trust him. He's already done it. What Jesus did on the cross was a decisive mark 
to end and get the dominoes going for the rest of history. Now, turn to verse 16. We're going to skip a handful of verses. The next few verses are going to just be describing lots of different aspects of the city. Very beautiful, but we don't have time for that. We're going to look at verse 16 and verse 22. If you look at verse 16, this actually right here is a cube. If you look at those dimensions, this is a cube. Do you guys remember what else was a cube in the beginning of this message? The Holy of Holies. And so what John is trying to say, hey, you know that Holy of Holies that was only for certain people? Only once a year? That is going to cover the world. Everyone has that kind of access with God. Everyone who's trusting in Jesus has that kind of beautiful access. The Holy of Holies, God's tangible presence is going to be everywhere. Amen? Verse 22, chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Listen, there's no need for a temple because there's no need for mediation. See, the temple was when man was in such a messed up situation that God needed to create a temple so that he can mediate his presence. No longer. Jesus could just be right there because Jesus is made away. And now we're going to jump to chapter 22. The imagery is going to shift more less from a city to now to a garden. So this is a garden city. And if you read it carefully, it's screaming with connections with Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden and how so many things are reversed, but we don't have time to jump in all of that. But what I want to answer right here is who has access to this presence? Who gets this sweetness of the Holy of Holies right here? Who gets that? If you look at Isaiah 25, 6-9, don't, you don't have to flip it, it's going to be on the screen. But this is, a, like I said, a cross-reference with Revelation 21, 22. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, church, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And then also Isaiah 22, 2, chapter 2, verse 2 also shows that all the nations shall flow to this great mountain. And so all peoples have access to this presence. Not just Israelites, not just rich people, not just the people who have their act together. Actually, the people who don't have their act together know it. Everyone is invited. And that is kind of why we have this logo. So, if you guys see our logo, I know that a lot of people wonder if we're like secretly Illuminati or we're trying to do, you know, pull a fast one on people. But that's the Holy of Holies coming down on the Great Mountain. And it's just representing this picture that God's presence is already in in, in us by His Holy Spirit. And we want to give a glimpse of that one day reality. Wherever we want to go, and this is what next, message, next week's message is all about. We want to take God's presence wherever we go, and we're going to demonstrate it in word and deed. And one day, all peoples will flow to God, will come to God. And we can't wait for that day. But here's the question. Who are these all peoples? Who fits this? Turn back to Revelation 21, verse 6. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. So who gets this? 
Thirsty people. Thirsty people get it. Those who realize they're empty. That God is the ultimate satisfier of their longings. That they have nothing apart from Him. Him. They have nothing to give but purely, merely to receive. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. But the question that obviously comes up now is, how can you come without payment? How is that possible? How do you enter the city without payment? Well, because Jesus... Because Jesus already paid it. That's why we can come without payment. Because Jesus already paid it. Jesus is the answer to our need to have reconciliation with God, and yet God still be holy and good. See, when Jesus came and brought his kingdom, before he could establish it, he first needed to deal with our sin. Because if he didn't deal with our sin, he would have no one to be in his kingdom. Because he would have to wipe us all out. And so Jesus has this beautiful plan to reconcile, uh, reconcile us with God. So instead of overlooking sin, like an unjust judge, that's fine, or condemning all the guilty, like a just judge, God did the unthinkable by marrying both His justice and His love in a way to save His people. And so God's justice screams out, destroy them, punish them, they deserve it. They totally rejected me. They lived their whole life without regard of me. They rebelled. And then yet his love screams out, I want them, I love them, I will die for them. And so on the cross, Jesus takes the full wrath of God that you and I all occurred in our life, the punishment, the death that we all deserve. Jesus died on our cross for our sake so that we can be reconciled with God so that we can be in His presence. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, confirming that death was His death paid the penalty and inaugurating a new era. And if you want this, you can have it. You can have it. And more clearly, you can have Him. You can have Him if you want Him. All you got to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You can have Him. And verse 7 is actually essential to pair with verse 6 because verse 7 shows us that those who truly are thirsty, those who truly trust in Him, will persevere. They will stay thirsty. Not, oh, hey, when did you come to Jesus? Back, oh, yeah, 20 years ago, I loved Jesus and I wanted Him. No, do you still want Jesus today? Those who truly trust in Him will persevere, which is a word for those in Revelation because they were struggling to continue to persevere. Now the f- next section is, how do, who is prohibited from God's presence? If you look at verse 8 in chapter 21, and you can look at that list. I'm going to skip it for the sake of time for reading it, but we can't forget that everybody who's a Christian has committed sins on this list. So I, don't, I just want to be clear, I don't look at that list and be like, man, those sinners. I look at that list as a, yeah, I've done a lot of that. That's me. But why am I allowed to be in His presence? It's because the difference is I'm not standing alone. Jesus is standing as my advocate. He's with me. Sam's with me. He's done that. He's done all that. He deserves that death, but He's with me. But this is also important to know that we will be judged by our works. See, 
We are saved by works, but not our own. Jesus is worse. But also, those who truly trust in Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit, and our lives should not be characterized by this. I still have idolatry. I still have sexual morality. These things are still true of me at times. But I am not characterized by these, tr- by these labels anymore. And that is the difference between a Christian who's truly trusted in Jesus and those who are just putting on the jersey and coming to church. And if you don't have confidence, you'll experience his presence. Come talk with us after service. We're gonna, a few of us will be here and we want to pray with you. I don't want you to experience this. I don't want you to be standing alone because if you don't trust in Jesus, you're going to be alone that day. You're not going to have Jesus saying, vouching for you. I don't want that for anybody. But now on a positive note, let's go to Revelation 22.4. This is the final section. We're going to wrap it up. What will God's presence be like? They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And if you've read the Bible before, you know that this is a no-no. You don't see God's face, right? Exodus 33, you see his face, you die. You're too wicked, you can't see him. But because of what Jesus has accomplished, we're now able to see God face to face. And this is no Jim Caviezel's Passion of the Christ, white Jesus. This is the Jesus that was transfigured and glorified. The Jesus in Revelation 1 with eyes of a flame of fire that pierces through and has full of love and yet passion. This great holy Jesus, this is the one that we get to see face to face. Not a tame Jesus that everyone overlooks. Can you just imagine his face? And if you want to get a glimpse of his face, just go to Revelation 1. See, the greatest thing about heaven and earth is not the food we'll eat, but we're going to eat some good food, as you heard in Isaiah 25, or the great wine, if you're into that, or your relatives that have passed and are with Jesus. Those are all good and great. But the greatest thing about Jesus, the star of heaven, and as Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, says, the heaven of heaven, is that we get to be with Jesus face to face. You like that term, the heaven of heaven? Oh, I can't wait to see him. No more barriers. The commonly misunderstood and quoted verse, some of you guys may be familiar with Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Guys, we have never experienced this before. So if you're a Christian and you're thinking... God, Jesus doesn't fully satisfy me. Hey, he shouldn't fully satisfy you. And I know I could have just lost my job saying that, but the trick trick with me. Jesus should not fully satisfy until he returns, right? That's like telling a a loved one far away saying, I'm really content you being away. You fully satisfy me away. See, he can satisfy us in waves and in moments, but the fullness of his presence and the fullness of joy will not come back until he's face to face. We are made to be with him. We were not made to have this long distance relationship with the Holy Spirit filling us in this way. We are meant to be with him and walk with him in the cool of garden. You guys tracking with me? I, I, I didn't just commit heresy, right? Jesus will fully satisfy us. He, his presence is the answer to everything we want. But it won't be until he comes. And that's why we say, come Lord Jesus. That's why we still got work to do. 
There will be a day where there will be no more hope, guys. No more hope. Because hope's fulfillment will be right there. No longer will we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, because He will be right here. No longer will we need faith, because faith will turn to sight. And right now we see Him dimly, but one day we'll see Him fully. And I know that moment when I see Him, guys, I'm not going to think to myself, Oh man, I wish I watched more TV. I wish I spent more money on myself. I wish I had fancier meals. I wish I lusted more. I wish I worried more. I think in that moment I'm going to think, what a fool was I that I did not give him more. Well, what a fool was I that I did not give him everything that I could right now. And so that's, that's the goal for us is to, to live for that day in light of that day. Verse 5, we're wrapping up. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Remember that proverb I read earlier by Jeffrey Chaucer? All good things will come to an end? Not anymore. We will reign with them forever and ever. And we're not just going to enjoy this sweet relationship. We actually have things to do. So for those of you guys who are like me and terrified of this idea of having eternal church service, we're going to constantly be singing. No, we'll be singing. And for those of you guys who can't sing, you'll be able to sing well, I'm sure. But we're going to be able to do work with Him and reign with Him and redeem the earth. There's enough evidence in the Scripture to show that there's going to be ongoing work and reigning with Him forever and ever. That is good news for those who want to work. No more toil, no more curse. And if you think all this is unbelievable, God knows what you're thinking. Verse 6. And He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. These things have already happened in one sense. God has already stamped, it will, be, it will be done. God's presence is the answer to our need to be delivered from evil. God's presence is the answer to all our longings. God's presence is the, an- presence is the answer to all our need for purpose. God's presence is the answer to all our needs. 